Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. Before we get started today, I just want to remind everyone that coming soon is going to be our uh, Spooky Bunch uh, merch. So not we're not quite there yet, but be on the lookout because starting in October, we'll have some new merch launching for you. And with that, let's get into it. Welcome back, nature lovers, to another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast, where we talk everything conservation, education, and fascination. My name is Brittany, and today I'm joined by my two lovely friends, who just also happen to be my co-hosts. I'm Matt. And I'm CJ. How How are we doing this week, folks? I completely blanked last week, and I forgot to mention this, so I'm going to mention it now. Last weekend, not like yesterday, last weekend, but like last weekend, like Labor Day weekend, um, I got a chance to go to the Monty and Rose 2 documentary premiere. Um, We've been doing a fundraiser hosted by Bob Dolgan, and it was his film, and you know, in association with so many other amazing organizations and individuals. So it was really, really cute. And I if if they sell DVDs of it, I want to buy it because it's so cute. I really, really enjoyed watching it. Monty and Rose have slowly become some of my favorite birds just in general. I feel like when they come back next year, I'm gonna have to go see them a lot more than I did this year because they are just the absolute cutest. Gotta be honest, I'm tired. Like I think grad school officially started this week, is what it feels like. I did get a nice visit in to Illinois on a long weekend. So that was really nice. And I did get to start bird banding up again with the banding station, which is always a really enjoyable thing. And it's fun to be back in that kind of community. Other than that, I don't really have much to report. Just long days and short nights, unfortunately. I've had so much happen this last week. Um, I know last episode I made mention that I was going to the Jonas Brothers concert. I've gone to the Jonas Brothers concert. It was fantastic. S tier. Loved it. Fantastic. But um, I also got a really fun belated birthday present in that my mom and my brother came to visit. Dat me down in um, misery and made it less um, misery in this. this. But we had a really great time. We went to the zoo. So keep an eye out on posts this week uh, from that trip. And yeah, I'm really, really, really pumped. It was a good, great weekend. That definitely sounds like it was a good weekend, Brittany. I'm really glad to hear that you guys had a good time. Glad you had a good birthday, too. Is it time to jump into our first segment, Brittany? Yeah, let's go to some creature featuring of the creature features. So our creature we're featuring in today's creature feature is none other than the serval. These beautiful cats are native to the river and grassy areas of Central and Southern Africa. These carpuscular animals beat the African heat by sleeping during the hottest parts of the day. They're also really super proficient hunters, and they can even jump nine feet into the air to catch birds, 
which is amazing. Thankfully, they're not endangered, but without spoiling anything for today, they have been domesticated. So they have actually been bred with domesticated cats to create a whole new species of cat called a savanna cat. And because this has happened, they've become super popular in the pet trade. I personally have actually been fortunate enough to work with servals, servals and savanna cats actually at one of my previous facilities. And I really can't say I understand the draw to wanting either one as a pet. Um, they literally pee everywhere. They've got attitudes. And then there's the smell that's associated. So like, while they're pretty, I don't, I don't really think they make good pets. But that's, I guess, my own personal opinion. But yeah, the servals are like just like these really beautiful cats. Servals and wild cats in general, I actually find to be very cool, which is really interesting because I'm much more of a dog person. But wild cats have always been something that have fascinated me. And servals are such incredibly beautiful looking species, which kind of, you know, definitely exemplifies their attraction as, you know, pets, right? It's like kind of hard to outdo a cat that looks like that. I would presume probably one thing, too, is that, you know, that nice spotting pattern. I would presume people are probably like, oh, I've got my own little my own little cheetah, jaguar, leopard, you know, those large cats that are even worse to keep as pets. <laughs> but I think regardless, you know, it's such a cool thing that you were able to work with them, too, and can provide some context as to why they might not be the best pets. I think that's always important for people to remember when they're picking out animals for their home. Literally the two servals I worked with had such personalities. And if they didn't like you, they told you all about it. You couldn't walk past them without them like hissing at you. Cause they knew like you weren't one of their primary people. Yeah. They're very finicky and picky. Which is funny because I think a lot of times with domestic cats in general, you kind of get the common rhetoric that they're all prissy and sassy and everything like that. So to take the serval and kind of up that a lot, just like, oh, wow, that is a uh, that is a crabby animal. It's very catty, one might say. Oh, wow. What a what a great creature feature and discussion we've had on servals. All, all three of us have had on servals. Brittany, want to move us into current events? Yeah. And with all of that serval talk, I think we can now head on over to current events. Serval talk. <laughs> okay, so first up, I have a current event from the Wildlife Society posted on August 27th, 2021, titled Tree Swallows Ingest Dozens of Pesticides. So today we're going to be talking about exotic pets and how exotic pets might have impacts on local ecosystems. But one thing that also really impacts ecosystems are pesticides. And researchers in Quebec studying tree swallows, a small bird that's really aerial they're insectivorous which means that they eat bugs beautiful birds purple and snow white on the on the underbelly but 
Researchers in Quebec who study them have begun to note that these birds are ingesting various types of pesticides due to their insectivorous diet. And what's even more frightening about this statement is that this is happening even when they don't live near large industrial farms where these chemicals are most common, right? So more specifically, what they found is that in studying the little balls of bugs that these birds will make, what they'll do is the parents will catch like several insects at a time while they're foraging. And then they'll kind of make a ball of all those bugs that they then just drop into the baby's mouths when they're nesting. And, you know, this can sometimes include as many as nine insects from varied species. And so what they did was they analyzed these food balls and kind of looked at the prevalence of pesticides in these food balls and noted that 46% of the balls that they tested had traces of at least one pesticide, um, analyzing for 54 different ones. There's a lot of them out there on the market, especially in farming. What's really, really important to note is that every single farm that was tested did show the prevalence of at least one pesticide, even when the farms were so small that they likely didn't use any. And that's a little bit frightening because it kind of shows the it only takes one bad apple to ruin the whole tree kind of thing. And there's a couple of reasons for this. The number one being the funniest, in my opinion, this article literally notes that this is because birds fly, which is completely true. Birds fly and that's really true for a tree swallow who spends most of the time in the air catching bugs. So if they move from one of those small farms into an area nearby that's near a larger farm, well, the impact of the little farm not using insecticides has just been completely nullified because they've ended up in a different territory. The other more troublesome thing to me is that the researchers also said they found different compounds such as caffeine and acetaminophen in some of these bugs, and they were finding trace amounts of the chemicals from human waste. And at first you're like, how, how the hell are these bugs taking drugs? Well, a lot of these bugs have at least one life stage, usually the infant in the juvenile stage, in the water. And with water pollution, especially of caffeine and Tylenol, you know, stuff that's been dumped, people do a lot of dumping of that stuff. You know, if you ever dumped a pill bottle, um, it usually ends up in the waterways because it's water soluble, right? That's how we take it. It dissolves in our stomach. And so when that stuff dissolves into a water system, uh, stuff like caffeine from our leftover coffee or the acetaminophen, they're finding that the food source for these birds also includes those things that you don't necessarily want to see. Researchers haven't determined yet how much of all these chemicals are being ingested, uh, mainly because there was only, you know, a couple balls analyzed per nest. And so there's not really a much of a long term or large enough data set to make a conclusion of how much of what. It's more so just showing the presence of that, which is kind of the branching off point, right? Like if they didn't find any of that stuff, well, there's no need to continue and funnel more money in. But nonetheless, it's not the most exciting thing to see and not necessarily a bad thing yet. 
but something that will be researched going forward and does need to have an eye kept out on because if we're not careful this could be something that has like potential silent spring levels and considering the fact that the tree swallow is much less of a charismatic species than the bald eagle it's going to be harder to rally support from government and locals and community members so something we just need to keep an eye on before it potentially causes mass die off i'm glad you mentioned about them not being as charismatic as the bald eagle because like as the whole time you're telling us about that current event all i could think about was did we learn nothing from the ddt and bald eagles like it just the history repeats itself and it's frustrating that we can't learn from past mistakes my current event is gonna come from the guardian and the title reads blue tongue lizards are resistant to red-bellied black snake venom australian study finds and so i think it was a couple weeks ago now we talked about the blue tongue skink because apparently that's who i am as a person now and as the only animal i'm ever going to talk about ever again is the blue tongue skink but there was a study done where these uh, researchers found that blue tongue skinks have developed a resistance to the venom of a red-bellied black snake. And so red-bellied black snakes are one of their main predators. And they compared both blue tongue skink blood samples and goannas blood samples and their resistance to these the snake venom. So both animals are a prey item for these snakes. And it was found that blue tongue skinks have developed this resistance where the goannas have not, um, which has been really interesting. And then they actually just published their findings in this journal called Toxins. So the way that blue tongue skinks have been able to uh, kind of build up this resistance has actually been in a way that they've been able to evolve to have specific blood components. It's a serum factor that prevents their blood from clotting when this venom is exposed. So basically, like they're not immune, like it's not an immunity of this venom, but it there's just like a better chance of them not dying from getting bit by one of these snakes. Whereas if uh, one of the, the goannas or, uh, were to get bit, it's pretty much a death sentence. Um, so they're like going to be doing some more research to be able to kind of find out a little bit more about the resistance and exactly how everything works. Um, but this is just kind of like their first findings and their first bits of information. So I think that's really cool. I, like I said, I love blue tongue skinks. They are a recent little love of mine. Um, but yeah, that's just really freaking cool. And Australia is again, once again, insane. I mean, you already know I love Australia, which, uh, is why my current event is also related to Australia this week. My current event comes from livescience.com and is titled stunning colorized footage provides a glimpse of the last known Tasmanian tiger nearly a century ago. A filmmaker captured a short black and white movie of the last known Tylosine, also known as the Tasmanian Tiger, as it padded around its enclosure at the Bure 
Morris Zoo in Hobart, Tasmania, Australia. Now, that long-dead animal, which keepers named Benjamin, has come back to life in this new colorized version of the footage. In the enhanced footage, which the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia shared on YouTube on September 6th, Benjamin has yellowish fur striped with dark brown over his back and rump. When he gapes, his astonishingly long jaws and head-stretching yawn, his tongue and the inside of his mouth are a delicate shade of pink. Australian naturalist David Flay captured footage on 35mm film in December of 1933. The film and negative are in the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia's collection, and it was recently scanned under 4K resolution and then colorized under the supervision of a film producer. So uh, they recently put this out, and it is absolutely stunning. More than 200 hours of work were put into achieve this result of colorizing this footage. While thylacines are more commonly known as Tasmanian tigers or Tasmanian wolves, they're neither wolves nor tigers, um, but rather these extinct animals were one of the biggest carnivorous marsupials, with adults weighing in as much as 66 pounds, or 30 kilograms for international listeners. Tasmanian tigers once roamed Australia about 2,000 years ago, and they were only found on the island of Tasmania, um, where approximately 5,000 thylacines remained by the time the Europeans colonized the continent in the late 18th century. By the mid-1930s, sightings of thylacines were extremely, really rare. And after Benjamin, the thylacine's death at the Hobart Zoo in 1936, attempts to capture another thylacine were unsuccessful, and the species was declared extinct in 1986. There are only 10 known film clips of living thylacines, and this footage is the longest, with a running time of about 80 seconds. But even a minute of filming may have been too much for the, the thylacine subject of Flea's footage. As shortly after the footage uh, of Benjamin the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger bit him on the buttocks, according to the NFSA, which is pretty funny. It did not want to be filmed. But this footage is absolutely stunning of this, you know, colorized version. What a beautiful, beautiful animal. I know Matt loves the thylacine as well. So, yeah, that's uh, that's my current event. All right. That was awesome. And I think with that, we can go ahead and head on over to today's main topic. Today, we're talking about exotic pet ownership. Now we have talked about the pet trade here on the Birdie Bunch podcast in the past, but today we're going to more specifically focus on the impacts that exotic pet trade not only have on their species and the natural and their natural habitat, but also what happens when so those animals get to be pets and the effects it has on them, the ownership and just on local habitats. And so with that, let's get into it. Our first animal that we're going to talk about today is going to be the Burmese python. So natively, Burmese pythons are going to be found in the marshes of Southeast Asia. And they came into the United States as a part of the exotic pet trade. And there was a huge boom during the 1980s where these uh, snakes were being imported into the States. Unfortunately, a lot of people, when wanting to get pets, 
um, not just exotic pets, pets in general, but it becomes especially problematic with exotic pets is that they don't do the research first. And Burmese pythons um, aren't a small species of snake. They can get up to 20 feet in length. Um, they're massive. And unfortunately, people, once they got to be to a size that became unmanageable for them, they did release these huge snakes into local local wildlife and it became a huge problem specifically in florida irresponsible pet ownership kind of started this issue with burmese pythons because now they're invasive species but there is also a hurricane it was hurricane andrew that came in to uh play and so basically in 1992 when hurricane andrew hit this breeder, this breeding facility got hit really bad uh, by the hurricane and they lost. And by loss, I don't mean die. Um, a lot of the snakes that they had got loose and it became an issue. So when you have a mix of this hurricane hitting and the, this breeding facility uh, being hit and then people also just not doing the right thing and just releasing their Burmese pythons, out into out into the Florida marshes. Florida has very similar heat indexes. They have very similar environments to where Burmese pythons are natively from. And so these guys have been able to thrive and have really become pretty damaging to Florida's ecosystem. They've been seen taking on alligators and witting. Like they don't have that many you know, natural predators. And so unfortunately, they've become a really big issue. So when we're talking about exotic pet ownership, and we're talking about whether you should or shouldn't, every time I talk about people getting pets, I always talk about doing your research. Because snakes, having snakes in general are, is great, if you're going to do it properly. But also when you've got these exotic pets are getting up to be 20, you know, 20 feet in length. The average Joe isn't going to be able to take care of that. Your 10-year-old who really wanted a snake and you decided just that snake looks cool, it's not going to, it just doesn't end up going very well and doesn't end up becoming anything that anybody wants to happen. And so I think, especially with the Burmese pythons, like, yes, Hurricane Andrew happened and it was a breeding facility, but had that breeding facility not been there, if we didn't bring in these huge snakes as pets or people, you know, if there wasn't a want or a need, there wasn't a demand for them, maybe it wouldn't have been as bad. You can go maybe, you can go back and forth and you'll never really know. But it's just one example out of many that we'll get into that has caused issues for native wildlife that we have here. Yeah, so I'm going to mirror a lot of what you said, um, and I think that's kind of going to be a common thread of a lot of the species that we talk about today. Um, I think a lot of times when you talk about exotic pets, you know, especially keeping them, right, you know, there's kind of a reason they're exotic. There's a reason that they kind of break the norm of what people usually have, and usually that ends up being requirement needs right there's a lot of theories as to how the process of domestication has gone on but one thing that's pretty agreed upon is the fact that 
as we've domesticated animals, we've made them suitable for cohabitation in a standard modern environment, right? Like a dog can fit reasonably well, depending on what size dog, in any living space. Like I said, depending on what size dog, obviously, in your one room flat, you're not going to keep an Irish wolfhound. However, there is a suitable dog for that size apartment, and there's a suitable cat for that size apartment, and fish, and all that fun stuff. So these are going to be common threads I think we're probably going to examine. And I say that because I'm even taking us back to Florida. Because one thing that people keep and have been popping up a little bit in pop culture, apparently, recently, has been alligators. Alligators are another really, really large reptile. Um, Alligators... You probably all know now, specifically mostly talking about the American alligator, because one thing that's interesting about the trade of alligators is that unlike with other invasive species or exotic species where like there's a potential for it to be regulated a little bit more because you're crossing country lines, you know, it is admittedly very easy for someone in Tennessee or Indiana or Kentucky or anywhere to go down to Florida and drive back. There's no patrols or anything like that across state lines usually and so regulating alligator trade is a little bit more interesting especially when you know even though there are laws against having alligator farms per se or selling to places that they aren't allowed it's a lot harder to keep that in check and so alligators are something that's popped up relatively recently i think it's been I want to say four years since we had Chance the Snapper pop up in the middle of Chicago, right? The middle of downtown Chicago, a released pet alligator. Um, And then I believe there was one either the next year or two years later that I think they also just named Chance the Snapper because it's a good name um, for an alligator in Chicago with Chance the Rapper being from Chicago. And so we're seeing them kind of pop up not as invasively as Burmese pythons because the Burmese python has been a perfect storm of it just so happens to match the environment requirements that it needs to survive. And when an alligator is released in Chicago, it usually ends up dying, which is another issue altogether. But we are seeing this become prevalent. Now, why is this happening? The easiest description is because alligators are really cute when they're small. They look like little lizards. Like they really do. But unlike a little lizard, say if someone were to get a green anole or something like that, that stays, you know, relatively small, about three or four to five inches, um, the alligator grows to 14 feet and has a mouthful of over 80 teeth with one of the strongest bite forces and its relative having the strongest bite force ever recorded of any animal. So that little... That little cute little lizard looking thing has just turned into a freaking dinosaur. They're also really crabby and they will bite pet owners. Um, They're also really fast. They can run upwards of like 20 miles an hour. And that is like essentially a small horse running at you with the teeth full of things that are supposed to break through your bone. They are expensive to feed, requiring sometimes upwards of $200 of food a week, which is another huge monetary commitment, as well as keeping them in water because water is a major requirement 
of an alligator's life. They are semi-aquatic creatures. They need a really large pool of water to thrive. And while a lot of people will use pools or something like that to keep them in, this is actually bad for their health. Because similarly to how we talked about with blue whales last week, buoyancy is a big part of supporting the skeletal and the internal organ structure of an alligator's body. And they're such big animals that if they are out of the water too long, they can have a similar really detrimental effect of just the gravity on all that mass pressing down on their organs. And so it's really hard to keep an alligator as evidenced by people getting rid of them. And then it presents a problem for when they get rid of them, right? It's not necessarily the Burmese python problem where, oh crap, we've just created an invasive species in Illinois where alligators are taking over because they would die in the winter. But there's an ethical problem with the fact that you throw a lamb to the slaughter, essentially, when you bought it illegally as a pet. Because it's really not too legal to own alligators across the country. There's about maybe five states, you know, that where that's a possibility. And that just kind of increases the problems because, say, your alligator gets sick and you live in a place where you're not allowed to keep them. Well, your alligator's not getting the health care that it deserves. And that's your fault. And so... It's a lot of stress on local ecosystems for the temporary time it's there, right? This is a large predator where there was not one there before. And an alligator is a very large predator. And it makes for just an all-around not great scenario that, you know, kind of like I was talking about, really mirrors a lot of what Brittany talked about with just these large-bodied species that outgrow what people expect. Um, and it just ends up being a pretty consistent recipe for disaster when talking about exotic pets. It's crazy to me how much people don't think before they do, right? So like, I feel like it should just be common sense. Don't get an alligator because they're massive. They require a lot and it's illegal. But I just feel like a lot of people, especially like specifically with reptiles, they don't think about like the needs that those reptiles are going to need like just in general. Yeah, you're totally right. And I think part of the thing that I've always thought about too is that reptiles are reminiscent of a time past, right? Mm -hmm. Like they are reminiscent of dinosaurs. And I don't think anybody like the casual reptile owner wants something that looks super detached from the dinosaurs, right? There's that appeal of it. This is a living dinosaur. So do I want a small little anole who like, if they bite my finger, I might say, well, why'd you do that? And then put it back. Or do I want something really big and that, you know, everyone looks at it like, holy crap, he's got a dinosaur. And I think that might be a big issue is that like you don't see that issue with dogs or cats. Like, obviously, you'll see people gravitate towards the larger things. But small dogs, they kind of speak for themselves to most people. And I think a lot of people, when getting into reptiles really casually, don't have that same kind of rationale behind it. I think just as a society in general, there's like this big draw to the bigger, the better. And there's become like this, I have to have something cooler than the next person. So you're talking about instead of getting like a bearded dragon or a little no, you're getting an alligator, instead of getting a domesticated cat, you're getting a serval or a tiger. We had a whole documentary about basically just that. 
it, yeah. uh, someone who decided to have an exotic pet and irresponsibly breed them and not yeah, being able to take care of them. We're going to get in some stories related to breeding some exotic pets you can't control a little bit later. But I'm going to jump into my first uh, exotic pet here. This is probably one of my uh, favorite animals, and it's really unfortunate to see them so much in the exotic pet trade uh, and the wildlife trade in general. And I know I've, you know, just through scrolling on social media, all of us, you know, me, you, any of us nature lovers, you might be able to see um, a cute baby chimpanzee dressed up in human clothing. But the story of how that chimpanzee got there is not as cute. In the depths of social media, search engines, and other platforms, those looking to create profit off the sale of chimpanzees and other apes, it it really works to connect buyers to sellers of these chimpanzees, and challenges grow for those wanting to stop the illegal wildlife trade, because it's just drawing more and more attention the more that these videos are shared and viewed. Illegal trafficking is one of the top three threats to chimpanzees, which is an endangered species. Every year, over 3,000 great apes, including chimpanzees, are taken from their home in the wild or are killed as a result of the illegal wildlife trade. Between 2005 and 2007, an estimated 22,000 great apes were either captured for sale or killed. The result is unbelievably devastating, right? So great apes are social animals just like humans. We are great apes as well. And as individuals are lost, entire groups suffer. In many cases, entire communities may be wiped out so that poachers can secure one lone infant. Social media has really changed the way that the illegal wildlife trade and animal trafficking operates because interested buyers can just reach out to traffickers through social media. And they often advertise animals dressed up in human clothing like chimps. Worst of all, illegal trafficking of wildlife continues to be lucrative, especially for those at the top. Baby chimpanzees sell for more than $13,000. People who profit off this trade end up eluding arrest. And often those who are like under these like people who are paid all this money, who are often underpaid with no alternative options for income, are punished. This really brings us back to something called a fair trade, where people are put in situations where they are forced to poach or hunt bushmeat or, you know, participate in the illegal wildlife trade because they have no other option to support their family. And it's really, really easy to, you know, be here in America and say, no, you shouldn't go do that. It's wrong when we have no idea what that situation is like. It's really important when talking about, you know, issues like this to consider the local people in those issues because they are as impacted by also those chimpanzees as we feel bad about it. <laughs> so, you know, it, when chimpanzees are trafficked, they're used for entertainment, they're sold as illegal pets, they're kept at un unaccredited roadside zoos, and they often become problematic for those who keep them because they're such complex animals just like human beings. So kind of take that into account when you're looking on social media, you're seeing all these crazy, crazy animals, especially chimps, because they are really cool. And it's not cool. To keep them as pets. Every time I see, I'm not gonna lie, every time I see a video of a chimp dressed up, I do report it. But also, like, I just think about all of the stories I've heard about chimps literally ripping off 
people's faces because as people, we inherently just tend to trust animals that we live with, right? And so I think a lot of times, like people who are owning chimps, they forget that they're chimpanzees and chimps aren't nice when it comes when they're angry and they they're also are, just incredibly territorial and hormonal just like we are yes but they have the means to do something about it yep and they're like they'll literally when they are upset and they are angry they don't just like it's not gonna be a quick death they literally like rip off fingernails at a time because they're curious as to what it is they'll bite off a finger like you know what i mean it's not a quick we're, we're not quite in the spooky bunch just yet Brittany. sorry it's not, it's not time for horror stories just yet but sorry. the point stands but the, the point, point is there the point stands <laughs> don't, don't buy a chimpanzee, chimpanzee. <laughs> you, you know, one thing I always try to talk about with people is that I think people vastly overestimate how many tools we have for survival versus other animals. I do not take myself in a fight with a squirrel. I'd bet on the other guy. And that is the truth of the matter. I And it's it's maddening to me sometimes because, you know, you look at humans, right? And we live in houses where many of us complain about not having air conditioning. Our tools for survival were build things that do the surviving for us. Whereas like a squirrel survival skills or I'm going to claw the crap out of your eyes or a goose's survival skill is I'm going to thwack you. Like these things are built for survival. And when you take them out of the wild and put them into your home, like they're kind of in a survival scenario now. And I will take any other species any day over a human. And I think people, you know, to what you said, Brittany, like, I think people trust the animals that they live with and they forget that these are creatures that are built not to live, but to survive. Um, and I think there's a big difference. And I think it's almost a lack of respect for the sanctity of the existence in nature, like, because they're going to kill you if if you let them and they have the tools, like CJ said, to do so. I do want, I think it's an important thing as we're talking about exotic pet ownership and things like that to talk about that, like we're talking about how people take these animals in as pets and they, they end up having all of this trust in that they're not going to hurt them. Right. But that's so different from legitimate zoos mm -hmm. and aquariums and places that have these animals for us to be able to see and the difference there's so there's a long list of differences mm -hmm. and that's another a whole nother episode but one of that is like as a as a keeper like i don't trust a single one of my animals not to bite me like i don't there's the but and there's a, a mutual level or a, there's a layer i guess not Mutual, but there's a layer of respect that I have for them knowing, A, they're still wild animals. These are still animals that will beat the crap out of me, like, if provoked. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of times, especially in the pet trade, is missed. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's this concept of ownership that kind of gets thrown around, too. When we talk about pets, we talk about we own them. I've never heard a single zoo ever talk about how they own their animals there's almost like a mutual respect um 
built into those lines and there's not really a system of ones higher than the other i provide the care to these animals that they need to survive and in doing so they survive um and live really good lives right like this is the utmost of care and then i think that's the other big delineation between the two is that zoos have the capability and repeatedly show that they have the capability when they are these aza accredited zoos especially that they provide things the resources that they need right talking about the american alligator and how they need large pools and a lot of food um to survive well if a zoo has a large pool and is able to support a lot of food going to that creature you know these are such different things than i'm going to bring it back to it again tiger king where they just had cages and like a little a kiddie pool for their tiger you know and you can get a gauge for it immediately as soon as you walk in like it's it's pretty astounding the difference between these exotic pet ownership rings and like accredited zoos yeah you know on that same note of like how animal care is different in you know zoos and aquariums versus you know under just general human care we talked a little about tiger king we talked about you know how a lot of animals are just kept as pets because they look really cool or because they're just really you know notable like tigers like chimpanzees and also like hippos so for those of us who don't know there are wild hippos in colombia because Pablo Escobar, one of the most notorious criminals of all time, founder of a drug cartel in the 80s responsible for kidnappings and bombings and assassinations, and was thought to be once the world's richest man, imported a group of hippos to Colombia, and since his death, they have broken out and are now just rampant and ruining the ecosystem in Colombia. And this, I feel like, is just another really interesting examples of how exotic pets especially those just held by private collectors let me just rephrase held by eccentric private collectors are you know just really putting natural spaces in not good not 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 good you know light mm -hmm. because talk about tiger king it changed people's perspective of zoos and aquariums even though it doesn't accurately represent them these so-called cocaine hippos be literally have killed people all over Colombia because hippos are one of the most dangerous animals on the planet, if not the most dangerous. Scientists literally don't know how many hippos are there. They cannot keep track because they just keep reproducing. They think there's over 100 hippos just loose in Colombia. And it is the biggest hippo herd outside of Africa. It is unbelievable in terms of you know analyzing how we look at exotic pets impacting both ecosystems and perceptions it is genuinely insane at how many times we've seen this and we don't even realize it because like i never knew that, <laughs> that there was cocaine hippos just outside of africa i think that's wild and i think sometimes you know it's crazy that a species that large right went without majority public knowing about that like this is this is the hippo this is this is a hippo that's a big boy 
and it's kind of crazy. It's a four thousand pound animal. Yeah, it that is. People it, didn't know was there. It's that's that is insane to me, and like, it kind of goes to show how much we miss just under our nose, right? Like, I was researching for this episode, and just last week I discovered that red-eared sliders, um, which are pretty common in the Midwestern waterways, they're a type of type of turtle, are also invasive. Um, from the exact same reason they were released from what is apparently a big boom of children wanting them because of the show Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And from that, we now have a species that poses risk to native turtle populations and like a lot of the continental united states and like obviously it ain't no hippo but like it still is pretty important and if a hippo's easy to miss how about a turtle it's underwater too yeah i mean talk specifically about red and sliders you know here in you know illinois here in chicago landing turtles are critically endangered Mm-hmm. And red-eared sliders are just eating up the resources for Blanding's turtles. There's some really awesome conservation happening with them, Blanding's turtles, that is. Um, you know, facilities like Cosley Zoo, facilities like Brookfield Zoo, you know, DuPage, DuPage County Forest Preserve, Cook County Forest Preserve. There's some really awesome conservation happening. But these red-eared sliders are not going anywhere. They are a permanent stay here now that they're mm-hmm. here. Same thing like the Burmese pythons in Florida. Same thing like the cocaine hippos. <laughs> It's crazy to me that there's cocaine hippos, but with red-eared sliders specifically, people getting them at like little carnivals that where they're like the size of a dime and then they're bigger or whatever. And like they, they're turtles, they live significant amount of time. And then you've got kids that are in middle school or high school getting them, they think it's easy. And then going off to college and being like, I'm not taking this thing plopping it out into the wild and just not even giving it a second thought. Mm-hmm. It, they live for a crazy amount of time. Like you think like tortoises can live, you know, 200 something years. These turtles live crazy long too. And it's really interesting that you bring up that you can get them at like carnivals and stuff because in the state of Illinois, at least I can't speak for other states, the United States, but in the state of Illinois, it is illegal to buy turtles that are less than two inches. You can only do it if it's air quotes for educational purposes. Oh, because you can just say, yep, it's for educational purposes. And then take home a dime sized turtle. Like, don't do that because they're a problem as is, but that's literally how the reptile trait works. We've had several conversations about the reptile world and how things are presented. And we, you're talking about, how perceptions really matter and really, how yep. and how like things have changed like there uh, the tiger king and the and and the perception it gave people on zoos and aquariums and actual legitimate accredited places that i can go on around on forever but like just perceptions when i look when i've been to shows where like you see animals in small little terrariums and then people who don't have the background knowledge and who aren't going to look up the background information that are needed for that species think that 
a small, tiny fishbowl size tank is acceptable for a snake or something like that because they saw it. They saw it. It was up on, it was at the, the reptile show and clearly they know what they're doing if they're, that's what they're all about. And it, it's that perception that matters. So we talk about those perceptions, but then we also, there's also like this, this other point of people not realizing what, what's happening to ecosystems um, from the pet that they're potentially purchasing. Again, not doing their background research. So for example, African gray parrots are critically endangered currently. Um, and that's literally because a, a big, portion of it is due to the pet trade. So African gray parrots between 1984 and 1922 were imported into the United States in just massive amounts. It was estimated that roughly 1.5 million African gray parrots were taken from the wild and then exported. And it they say about 60 to 80% a lot of times will die in transportation, whether that's being transported just irresponsibly or not having what they need. But even with that mass amount of a percentage of literally dying, about 1.3 million birds were imported into the United States during that time. And it's crazy because African gray parrots, A, are super intelligent. So they have the intelligence of a three to five-year-old. And their big draw and the reason why people, there's been such a big boom of them is because they are fantastic mimickers. So they are able to mimic different sounds, different phrases, and people think it's cool because they think they're quote unquote talking. And a lot of times don't really, like it, they don't, people don't put together that they're not talking like you and I talk, they're talking, they're mimicking the sounds that they hear all of the time. And, but it's the reason why they've gotten so popular. And so then on top of that, you know, there's a really big habitat loss. So you've got this already detrimental crisis for these birds um, that with habitat loss, a lot of it again is because of humans. And then you add in that, like that, 1.3 million that I talked about was just the legal sale. There's not even talking about the illegal pet trade. So like, it's just crazy. And so bird, these birds are super social and they'll live into flocks of about a thousand and they're just dwindling and it's sad. And again, people have this perception, one, that there are gonna be these awesome, amazing birds that are just gonna talk to them all day. Uh, there's this lack of research. They don't realize these birds in human care are going to be able to live to be about 60 years old. So a lot of times they outlive their owners. And so there's like that perception, there's that lack of research. And then there's just the, the lack of understanding and, and knowledge of what it's doing to their native habitat. It's it's just insane. You've kind of got that trifecta of what we've kind of talked about in total with all of our examples today. Yeah, I was just about to say, you know, this kind of grouping seems to be like, or this species seems to be the compilation of everything we discussed about how, you know, the different ways that the exotic pet trade 
which filters into, you know, a lot of illegal pet trading and stuff like that. You know, they often very go well hand in hand together. It's crazy how you found the example that hits all the points that we made. It's a great one to summarize the whole entire episode up with and close it out with. Yeah, I think that that like, I just want to thank you both for this awesome discussion and really being able to talk more in depth about it. But with that, um, I think it's time that we uh, head on out. So where can where can you all find Matt? Where can you be found on the social meds? So I can be found on Instagram at Matt Valiga. That is M-A-T-T-V as in Victor A-L-I-G-A. And time is not on my side right now. I don't have much of it. But when I do, you'll be hearing from me. You can also find me on the social meds at cj.greco that's cj dot g is in grichter r e c o <laughs> Brittany made a very funny face i only did that because i was reminded that matt used to say v is in vulture and it's it's pretty it's been pretty constant as v is in victor as of late so i wanted to throw that back um but every week i'm going to be posting some relevant content um so realistically this week i'll probably post a hippo picture because again love hippos um, but I also might post a Burmese Python picture or a Red Eared Slider picture. So stay tuned. Who's to say what I'm going to post this week? Brittany, what's your gram? Oh, you know I'm on the gram at the Brittany underscore bunch. T-H-E-B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y underscore B as in boy. U N C H. I wanted you to say B is in Brichter. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, what are you doing? Um, yeah, I'm gonna this week try to post some fun s- photos I take at the zoo from this past weekend with my mom and my family. And yeah, I'm going to try. I also don't have lots of time, but I always try to make time for you, listeners. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but you can find all of us collectively on Instagram oh, yeah. at the Birdie Bunch Podcast on Instagram. That's T H E B I R D Y B U N C H P is in Picter O D C S T. It's a funny joke, but it makes me cringe every time. It does. Time. It's very cringeworthy, but I really <laughs> enjoy it. Um, and we'll be posting all kinds of good stuff. So go make sure to check out our Instagram. You can visit our website at thebirdiebunchpodcast.com for a blog post with resources from this episode, as well as uh, links to our merch store, as well as our Patreon. Support us on Patreon. We have a couple different tiers of support, uh, including this one, where you get a shout out on the podcast. So again, shout out to our patron, Gabe Anderle. Thank you so much for continuing to be a patron gabe and uh hopefully we can connect more soon in addition to getting a shout out from patreon you can also get a shout out if you leave us a review no new reviews this week but if you leave us a five-star review on apple Podcasts, we will read it out here on the podcast for you to get a shout out so leave us a review that's a great way to uh let other people know how much you enjoy the birdie bunch podcast if you enjoy the birdie bunch podcast as well you can share this podcast with a friend share this podcast with a friend that's how we grow if you learn something new today if you learned about cocaine hippos for the first time tell somebody about it and say where you learned it the birdie bunch podcast some good stuff 
Thank you so much for listening, nature lovers. All right, Brittany, bring us home. Tell them to catch you next time. All right. And with that, we'll catch you next time. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Birdie Bunch podcast. We would like to thank Sarah Dunlap for designing our logos, Elliot High for being our writing and production assistant, and Connor Whitman for being our music producer. The mission of the Birdie Bunch podcast is to inspire an inclusive community for conservation by using education to promote fascination.